You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. So speaking of the beginning of Lent, a few years ago, I decided to give up something that's relevant this morning. And this might sound, usually people give up like chocolate, but uh, a few years ago, I gave up looking at my bank account. And some of y'all are like, I don't get that at all, but some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, so in that year, I only allowed myself to look at my bank account one day a week, once, because I, I didn't want to like have fraud going on for 40 days and just not know what was going on. And I did this because over time I had realized that looking at my bank account and crunching the numbers had become um, totally an idol for me. And by idol, I mean it was something that I did so much and found so much comfort in that I did it a couple times a day. And again, to some of y'all that sounds really odd, but some of you guys are nodding along with me like I know what that's like. Right? It, it, looking at my bank account became something I began to place my hope in. Let me tell you, the number didn't change every day. It mostly stayed the same. But I wanted to think about how I might could plan or move something around this way, and if I saved this way and paid off this debt this way, maybe I could be more comfortable. So for that year, Lent, and this is something I still have to do regularly, for that year, Lent was an exercise in allowing the Lord to reveal how I treasured my abundance in the form of money. And during Lent, my hope was that instead of treasuring that, instead of treasuring the number in my bank account, um, that in those moments of desire to do that, I might instead turn to the Lord. So in those little moments where I might desire a fleeting moment of satisfaction that I know I'm going to need to do in a couple more hours to get a little more satisfaction, instead I might look to the one who brings eternal satisfaction. And so, this morning, I get it. It's uncomfortable to talk about money. But the reality is, we need to preach and talk about money a lot because the Bible talks about money a lot. 2,300 verses, more than that, in the Bible are about money. And that's because we struggle with it. God knew that that money and riches would be an earthly master for us that spanned all generations. So this is a problem thousands of years ago, and it's a problem today. He knew that abundance would tempt us. And so he addresses it often, and, and we plan to as well. And those 2,300 or more verses pretty much have a united message on money, and it's this. Don't ultimately trust in it. Don't stockpile it. Don't find your security in it. Instead, trust in the Lord. So with that in mind, let's read this this verse again, um, starting in verse 13 of chapter 12. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus says to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then Jesus says a parable. And this is the parable. 
The land of a rich man produced plentiful, and he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns, and I'll build larger ones, and there I will store all my grains and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But then God said to him, fool, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So let's look at a few things going on here, right? First, there's this scenario that Jesus is teaching, and this person in the crowd brings a very personal matter to Jesus and says, solve this. My brother got an inheritance. Make him split it with me. So why does this question get the answer of a parable is what I want us to consider, right? Because Jesus clearly could have just said no, but I think instead he answers with a parable, and ultimately he's going to go on in verses 22 through 34 to make a point, and that's why I had you leave your Bible at Luke there, because we're going to get there. So Jesus, uh, we have the question asked, a story told, and a point made, I just skipped way ahead on this, sorry. Okay. So this person asking the question must not, uh, right, so question, parable, point. That's where we are. The person asking this question must not have understood who Jesus is, right? Because if you understood who Jesus is, you probably wouldn't ask this question. That Jesus is God with all authority, and he's building and bringing people to himself. And this person thinks, this guy's got authority. Maybe he can get me some money. Now, Jesus does have all authority to technically solve this issue, right? Jesus has the earthly authority to say, okay, or no. And instead he says, who made you judge? Who made me judge over you? Who made me arbiter over you? And really, the man frames this question as if it's a brotherly unity question, right? He says, my brother, uh, my brother won't split this inheritance with me. Would you make him do it? And Jesus knows that that's not the heart of this question. The heart of this question is greed. Right? The question's framed as if it's Psalm 113.1, which says this, Behold how good and pleasant it is with, when brothers dwell in unity. But, but this appeal isn't driven out of, out of brotherly unity. It's driven out of greed, which is why Jesus answers how he does, concluding with the answer, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness, against all greed. So we should guard ourselves from being greedy, from coveting what others have. And in this case, the brother should guard himself from being greedy towards what the other brother has. And then we get this parable because there's a deeper issue in the question, the greed issue, right? And the parable is this, a man has a lot of land, and the land produces a lot of abundance of crops. 
And looking at that abundance, this man says this, I need bigger barns. Right, and we should know that the barn in this text is just a bank account. So the modern day example is a man has a big bank account and a lot of money is coming into it and he says, I need more bank accounts. I need to diversify my investments. I need a bigger account. Right, that, that's the, the exact modern day example and the person in the, the parable ultimately says this, once the barn is big, or once my account is big enough, then I will command my soul to rest. I will say to my soul, eat, drink, be merry, and relax. So the man is saying, eventually when that number gets big enough, I will be able to rest. I will allow myself to rest. And therefore, we can conclude what? That this man's treasure lies in his barn, right? His treasure, what he treasures, what he values in this world is in the barn, in the bank account. And so, he, he tells himself, when my treasure is big enough, I will be able to command my soul to rest. But God says what? You don't command your soul. Because God commands his soul that night and requires his soul that night. That's what that means. He dies. His soul is commanded by another. And so this is a little tragic, right? This is a sad parable. It should make us sad. It should make us also a little afraid. Because the narrative of a life cut short is all too familiar for us. Death plays a part in many of our own stories, and it will play us a part in all of our stories, ultimately. So this, to this man with the question about the inheritance, Jesus says no. He gives a parable, and then he concludes by saying this. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself in a barn or in a bank account, and is not rich toward God, which leads me to the question, what does it mean to be rich toward God? Right? We can't explain that, but I think Jesus clearly explains it starting in verse 22. So we're going to keep going here and read uh, all the way through 31. So this is how Jesus responds to that phrase, being rich toward God. He turns to his disciples and says, therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life for what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on it. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour of his span to his span of life? If then you're not able to do such a small thing as that, why would you be anxious about the rest? Or consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. They're beautiful. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field, today and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, how much more he will clothe you, O oh, us of little faith? 
So he finishes by saying this, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your father knows what you, that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these will be added to you. So Jesus' instruction here is don't be worried regarding our material possessions. And he uses nature as an example, right, that God feeds animals, and he clothes fields and grass. And beautifully, he adds, and God values you so much more than those things, not to say at all that God doesn't value nature, because he does highly, but, but Jesus says, out of all creation, you are the peak of all of it. And because he cares for us so much, he will take care of us. And we might be tempted to think that means he will shower us with riches, boats, cars, planes, and houses, but, but I don't think that's what he means. In fact, I know that's not what he means. The Bible wouldn't talk about suffering so much if that were the case. And Jesus, specifically here in Luke, is going to talk about um, not the earthly riches that we'll get for following him. On the contrary, I think in Luke, maybe more than any other gospel, Jesus talks about the high earthly cost of following him. Later in the chapter 12 and verse 52, Jesus is going to talk about families being divided for following him. That sons would be against fathers and fathers against sons and mothers against daughters and daughters against mothers. He says that one of the ways it's costly to follow me is that your relationships might suffer or be severed. Some of you might be acquainted with that cost. Maybe you've lost a deep friendship or a family member that you once really, really valued because you're following Jesus. And so here when he's talking about the cost of comfort in possessions, Jesus says you can't, you can't serve both. You can't serve God and money. He says, this is costly. We have to choose. But the comfort of choosing God and trusting in him and not in our own abundance, Jesus says, in doing that, he will provide for you. The reality is God knows what we need. He knows when we need it. He knows how material possessions can and will ruin our lives. He knows our propensity to be ruled by money and bank account numbers and possessions. And so, if we would trust in Him instead for the next day's provision, He will provide it. But we have to trust Him fully. And that means, if the next day's allotment doesn't come in the way we would think it should come then we still trust in God and his goodness because he's good. And so if it doesn't come in the manner we thought it would come, then it's for our good. We don't know everything. We can't see everything. Only God can, so we have to trust him. That's what Jesus is saying. And it might sound harsh, but this is how Jesus finishes it. In 32, he says this, Fear not, little flock. For it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions 
and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. So this is the point to the man's question. And the point is, we have an inheritance that's worth it. We who follow Jesus have an inheritance that's worth it. We have in the kingdom of heaven a treasure that won't be destroyed. It's the treasure of God. It's the treasure of dwelling with him for eternity. And that's how we're rich toward God is that we trust in that and we trust in him. So the man's question at the beginning of the text is this. Would you force my brother to split the inheritance with me? And Jesus, through a parable, a teaching, and a final point, says this. If you follow me, your inheritance will be given to you. It's the kingdom of God. It's eternal. It's not in a barn. It's not in a savings account. It's not in a retirement account or the stock market. It's not in anything fleeting. Your inheritance could be one that's everlasting, and it's in my house. Jesus says, follow me, invest in me, follow my commandments, invest in the kingdom, for that's the wise investment. How do we make that investment? How do we do it? Jesus says this, sell your possessions, give to the needy, and you will provide yourself with a treasure in heaven. So the prescription, the way forward for us, the investment that's eternal is generosity. This is radical for the people hearing it. It might be radical for us. It should be, I hope. The prescription for a problem that we face in treasuring what's in the barn or the bank account is to give it away. And Jesus says that's how you treasure the kingdom. That's how you are rich toward God. It's to be radically generous. That's costly. And the reason people follow Jesus isn't for the earthly gain, right? It's costly. This is uh, I think this is history, one of history's biggest problems with Christianity, right? The historian's problem with Christianity is why did a movement so costly spread so rapidly, right? So Jesus said, costly things, sell your possessions, give it all away, and follow me. And a movement like that spreads rapidly. If Jesus had said, follow me, and I will make you prosper with wealth, and possessions on this earth. I can understand how a movement like that would and does spread quickly. But that's not what Jesus says at all. That's not what Jesus says. And further, he continues to say hard things like relational things and costly things. But we still have this question, why did this movement spread so fast? Why, when facing persecution like the early Christians did, did this movement spread so fast? Well, I think it's A, because Christianity is true. 
I think it's because Jesus is who he says he is. But it's also because the early Christians took this promise seriously, that their inheritance wasn't on this earth, that it was in the kingdom of God. And they believed and knew that the inheritance would be worth it. They trusted in it. They believed that the kingdom of heaven could not be destroyed by a moth or a flame and that no one could steal it. And we who follow Jesus share in that inheritance so we should live like it. Okay, so what does this mean for us? Like, what should we do? Well, first, I think we should be generous. I certainly think that includes giving to the church because the ministry of the church absolutely includes caring for the poor and the needy and supporting people in various types of needs, financial or otherwise. But I think we can't escape this call to be generous directly to the poor and to the needy. That's what, that's what Jesus says. We need to take this call seriously. So I think that, that means we should examine ourselves and our finances seriously and give generously in a myriad of ways. Two, should we sell all of our possessions? Maybe. Some of y'all were expecting me to say no. But Jesus says, sell your possessions. <laughs> we can't get away from what he says. So maybe you know, or we can pray together that God would reveal to you where you are tempted to put your treasure but in general, I think this call, sell your possessions, is a call to a new posture of radical generosity. So I, I think more we should pray that we are a people that, that grow in radical generosity and that we hold all of our possessions with an open hand, knowing that they're God's, not ours. I think we should be eager to give and share at a moment's notice especially to those who lack in our own congregation and in our neighborhood. But if owning a lot of stuff and wanting more stuff is inhibiting you from being generous and therefore inhibiting you from treasuring the kingdom of God, then maybe, maybe some radical selling of your things is merited. Maybe it is. At its root, this is a question and a command geared towards exposing our heart, right? Right? If Jesus commands anything and our gut reaction is a grimace and an internal dialogue that starts with, that's nah, not really true, then I think that's probably a good place for us to start looking. That's probably a good place to start praying that the Lord would empower us to, to loosen our grips on what we hold really, really tightly. Here we're talking about finance, but that could be a relationship, that could be a job, that could be a whatever, right? But, but here... We're talking about money. Because for many of us, myself included, this is money. So if you're like me, you can get a little obsessive about saving and planning for the future. And we have to remind ourselves that uh, we don't control our soul. We don't know what the future holds. So as far as saving goes, does this mean we shouldn't save? No, I don't think that. 
I think we're called to um, stewarding God's resources well, and that might be, uh, I think that absolutely includes us preparing for the future. But that also means that we don't hoard it, and we don't always want more and more and more and more. The parable exposes this, right? The rich fool is a fool because he looked at a big barn and said, I need a bigger one. I need a bigger one to store more and more and more and more. It never stopped for the fool. And that's why his treasure is in the barn. But that's not where the treasure is for me. So I have to be disciplined with accountability and community to help me loosen my grip on abundance. What that looks like, I think that looks like striving for modest saving accounts and modest retirement accounts paired with radical generosity. I think that's probably the prescription for most of us in Houston. That means we save less than we think and we give more than we think. If your temptation is to do the opposite, then you're like me. I don't want to act like I'm not in this boat. My temptation is to give less and save more. That's why I need to be accountable to someone. It could be somebody in your parish or your family, but the bottom line is, if left on my own, I will gradually over time be more and more and more tempted to shrink the generosity number and grow the savings number. And that's not what the Lord has for me. That's what this parable means. More practically here, we, we do a budgeting class. We offer budgeting help. If you're hearing everything this morning and thinking, man, I don't even know what's going on in my bank account. I know that less goes in than comes out, or more goes in than comes out, I hope. Then my challenge to you is this. You aren't stewarding God's money well. Right? It, it, to steward God's money well means that you plan for generosity. So if you don't know what the numbers are, then how could you plan to be generous? You're not, we're not going to be generous naturally. We need to plan for it. We need accountability for it. But first, we have to be changed by the immense generosity of Christ. And the Holy Spirit has to change us to, to wade into this. And finally, as a, a takeaway, maybe this is your scenario. Maybe you're sitting in the room thinking, I don't have the luxury to sell my possessions and give to the poor. Maybe you're just trying to scrape by as it is. My encouragement to you is that you also belong here, and this is for you too. We as a church community want to provide for you. I believe Jesus when he says we should care for the brothers and sisters in our midst. And that means if you have a financial need and you're struggling, you need to let your parish know. Plenty of financial needs get met in the parish before they ever come across my desk I don't have a desk. My dining room table. But 
But if you don't feel comfortable going to your parish, we have a fund, a benevolence fund, a system here that's set up to help people financially. You have full access to it and ownership of it. Because it's God's money, and that's what he's commanded be done with it. You should know that you're part of a larger family that doesn't let people go without their daily bread. So if you don't know where your daily bread's coming from, please reach out. In doing so, you allow us to fulfill God's promise through God's people, the church, and I think that's beautiful. And if you're a member with, that, that's not your scenario, you have the ability to give to this fund directly. It's called the Benevolence Fund. But help us follow Jesus' command by, by making your needs known in community. This goes beyond financial, right? But, but it includes financial. It's been a taboo for way too long in the church not to talk about money. But we have the opportunity to meet each other's needs. So like I said at the beginning, all throughout the season of Lent, we are going to examine the parables of Jesus the parables we are looking at are largely stories about the kingdom of God and what it might take for sinful men and women like us to inherit the kingdom. This isn't a coincidence, right? Absolutely, the parables will help guide our Christian living and give us practical help and call us to practical repentance in areas that we fall short. Maybe over these few weeks, we'll, we'll together start to feel the gravity of the things Jesus calls us to do. And some of us are like, man, it's, this is the first week out of five, and it's already really hard. I'm with you. But there's more to this season than just exposing where we fail to measure up. Right? The point of dwelling on these things is because all of this leads up to Easter where we dwell on a Savior crucified and resurrected where we'll dwell on the lengths God took to win us for himself, his generosity in coming to earth as a man to die for us and free us from sin. We'll dwell on the actual cross where the bloody Christ hung naked. We'll dwell on the actual individual sins that held him there, including my greed. We'll dwell on his immense generosity unmatched in history. And we dwell on what comes three days after the cross because three days later, Jesus rises again victorious over sin and death and our own individual failings. The cross for us this morning can represent our freedom from slavery to money, our freedom from slavery to the bank account or any other sin. And the good news is Jesus, risen in authority, sends his spirit, the helper, in order that we might be victorious and being as radically generous as this text calls us to be. So if you're discouraged this morning, I want you to zero in on these words of Jesus that we read. I'll read them again. Fear not, little flock. It is in your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I need that fear not 
more and more and more as I grow in my walk with Jesus. I need that fear not. I need to remember it's Jesus who said it. I need to remember what the Father takes good pleasure in. We need to remember our inheritance. We need to remember where our treasure should be placed, our heart should be placed. And so this week, I want us to take a deep look at what we treasure individually and corporately as far as money is concerned. But the deeper look I want all of us to collectively take is the lengths that our God has gone through to enable us to treasure his kingdom and not the things of the earth. And not our little barns, our little sheds. Eternal storehouses. What he offers is so much greater, so everlasting, so joyful, and so eternally good. And when our treasure is there, when my treasure is there, my bank account being important kind of fades into the background. And I think when that happens for us together, we'll fix our eyes on the glorious Heavenly Father and the inheritance he has for us. Let's pray. Father, would you fix our eyes on the inheritance that waits in your kingdom? Would we dwell and consider the costliness of following you, but realize that the inheritance is so utterly worth it? And would we treasure that inheritance? And would it be evident in the way we live our lives that we're generous towards each other, towards our neighbors, and that we would rely and trust on you for the next day's bread? Lord, forgive me when I don't. Forgive us when we don't. Would you, um, by your Spirit, soothe and calm us, calm our anxiety, calm our worry about what the next dollar that needs to come in, and would we humbly bow and kneel and accept your provision with open hands saying, we trust you to provide. The inheritance is good and worth it. Fix us there. Store our abundance there. And Lord, throughout Lent, whether we're giving up something or not, as we focus on how we fail to measure up, Lord, would that never not be met with a, with a fuller cup of what you've done? Would this season only grow us in our love and appreciation and devotion to you because we see how much we needed you to do what you've done in coming to earth, living a life we couldn't, dying a death we should have, and rising in victory over it. Lord, would we see that and would it transform us daily, hourly? And Lord, when I spiral into fear, would I hear your word softly call, fear not, little one. And would I remember that it's in your good pleasure 
to give us these things. Would we remember that as we come to your table this morning? Will we partake in the inheritance of the kingdom and a feast yet to come this morning? Lord, we trust you. We love you. Would you enable us to do these things by your spirit for your glory? It's in your name we pray. Amen.